Good evening, Lighthouse family. It's so good to see all of you in here. And for all of you at home, this is our Good Friday service when we get to remember an amazing sacrifice God made for us because of who he is, his son sacrificing himself just so we could be with him in eternity. So we would ask this day as you worship, as you remember, as we give him glory and honor and praise for who he is, we just invite you to worship with us this night. If you feel like standing when we sing, please feel free to stand, sit, kneel. If you want to just thank him for who he is and what he has done, this is the night to do that. So welcome to celebrate the gift of the cross. God, I give you what I can today. These scattered ashes that I hid away, I lay it all. And your feet from the corners of my deepest shame, the empty places where I've worn your name. Show me the love I say I believe Help me to lay it down Oh Lord, I lay it down Oh, let this be
Well, good evening and happy Good Friday. I, I was remembering a, a conversation I had with a mentor of mine right when I started out in ministry some 20 years ago, and he said that he actually preferred doing memorial services over weddings. And, and at the time, I was just like, what on earth are you talking about? And then he went on to explain. He said, you know, at a, at a wedding, everybody's romanticizing about life. They're not giving any thought to what they're living for or any thought to the afterlife. But at a memorial service, at someone's funeral, everybody is considering how they're living in light of their own mortality. And now 20 years later, after having done Easter's over and over and over um, I have a similar confession to make, and that is that I actually, in many ways, prefer Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Now, I love the celebration of Easter Sunday. I'm looking forward to the celebration of Easter Sunday. But that celebration is hollow without the weighty things that happen on Good Friday. And so this is equally, if not even more so, important in our celebration is to sit in the cost of what that, uh, that celebration cost Christ. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to remember the sacrifice that he made so that we can live. But one of the things that is a challenge year after year is how to make something fresh that we know. Because as we know, familiarity begins to breathe a, a sense of contemptuousness. It, it begins to wear away the rough edges of these stories that we know so well that we kind of skip ahead and it loses its ability to shock us, to surprise us, to impact us in our hearts. And so tonight what I want to do is I, I want to take a different approach to Good Friday than we typically do. We're going to take a detour back into Genesis to an interaction, to a story that in many ways, as you will find, parallels Good Friday but in, in a lot of ways is foreshadowing. So, I need you to use your sanctified imaginations here, okay? Rather than simply reading the scripture, I want to try to help us enter into it and experience what this might have been like for this young man, Isaac, on the day that his father invited him to walk up a hill with him. So the sky was overcast on the day that Isaac first laid eyes on Mount Moriah. For three days he had followed his father to this desolate place. And every time he asked him why, Abraham would simply reply, because Yahweh wills it. It was uncharacteristic of his father to be so stoic. The aging patriarch would normally be forthcoming with his son. But Isaac could tell by the curt way he answered that there was something about this journey that was weighing upon his father, something he wasn't telling Isaac about. And that sense began to cast a dark cloud over their journey that got darker and darker as they got closer and closer to their destination. When they finally came to the foot of Mount Moriah, Abraham commanded the two servants who had come with them to set up camp. He then began to unload the wood off of the back of their donkey and put it onto his son's stout shoulders. Then he looked over to the servants and said, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go up the mountain. After we are finished, worshiping Yahweh will come back. And then with a, a torch in one hand and a large knife in the other, Abraham began to climb. Isaac followed his father, even though there was something in the way his dad was acting that made him wanted to run the other way. The wood he carried pressed down upon his back, splinters beginning to lodge in his exposed skin. And yet as heavy as the load on his back was, the questions in his mind were even weightier. What's going on? I mean, we have everything here for the sacrifice, but the sacrifice itself. What is my father not telling me? Isaac wasn't the kind of kid to talk back to his dad, but finally the weight of those questions grew too much, and he spoke them into the light. Abba? Yes, my son. I'm confused. 
I mean, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where's the sacrificial lamb? The silence was a little bit too long for Isaac's comfort, but finally Abraham responded wearily. Yahweh will provide the sacrificial lamb. Together, these two men walked in silence, one young, one old, both weighed down with heavy thoughts as they continued to climb Mount Moriah. Finally, they reached a rocky outcropping at the top of the hill, and Abraham indicated for Isaac to drop the wood onto the ground. They had arrived at the place that Yahweh had shown him to go. Together, they collected rocks and they built an altar. And then they arranged the wood that Isaac had carried. And then Abraham motioned for his son to come closer. Isaac complied, and when he got close, Abraham took the cord that they had used to tie up the wood, and he began to bind his son's hands together. Abba, what are you doing? Isaac said, although he knew very well in that moment what this meant. He realized that Yahweh had decided that he was the sacrifice. But that made no sense. I mean, for as long as Isaac could remember, his parents had been telling him that he was a child of a promise, that, the, that Yahweh had promised to, to, to bring him into this world and to do things through him, and now he's just going to take it back? It made no sense. But all his father would say to his request was, Yahweh wills it. even though the tightness of his voice and the tears in his eyes gave proof that this was really, really difficult for Abraham to do. He, there was a battle going on inside of his heart between his love for his son and his obedience to his God. Isaac could have resisted. He could have pulled his hands away from his father and run down that mountain. He was younger, he was stronger, he was faster. He could have escaped, but he trusted his father. And his father had always taught him to trust God, even when it didn't make sense. And even in this, Isaac chose to trust his father. So Isaac didn't resist being bound, nor did he resist when his father had him lie down on the altar, the rough wood digging into his back yet again. He didn't even close his eyes when his dad took that cold, dark knife and picked it up over his head and began to raise it up. He kept his eyes fixed upon his father's face, a face that he had known for as long as he could remember, a face that had always looked at him with joy and laughter, but today was clouded over with grief. Abraham, for his part, couldn't even look at his son, the son whom he loved so much. So great was the grief that he felt inside that he averted his eyes as he raised that knife. And as the knife reached its apex, it was as if the world paused for a moment, collecting its collective breath. And into that silence, a voice shook the heavens. Abraham, yes, here I am. Stop. Don't lay a hand upon your son because now I know that you fear me because you did not withhold from me your one and only son. <sighs> Abraham closed his eyes and lowered the knife and as he did, the tears that had been welling in his eyes began to course down his weathered face. And when he finally opened them again, movement in a bush off to the side caught his attention. And he saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. He quickly untied his son's hands, and together he and Isaac caught the ram, used the cord to tie it up, and sacrificed it on the altar that had been intended for Isaac. 
as these two men watch the smoke from the sacrifice rise into the heavens. Abraham kept his arm around his son's shoulders as a way of reminding himself that his boy still lived. He was alive because Yahweh had provided a substitute. Now, it might feel odd that we would spend any time, I mean, given that it's Good Friday, given that this is the day that we remember the sacrifice that Jesus makes, it might feel strange that we would travel back a couple of thousand years to look at a story out of Genesis. And yet, what I have found is that so much of the New Testament makes so much more sense when you understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is foreshadowing for what would come after, and you find Jesus all throughout it. And for most of my young adult life, I totally overlooked the Old Testament as if it was old and antiquated, and God was angry, and then Jesus showed up and he got happy, so let's go ahead and just spend our time there. And the best analogy I can give you is reading the New Testament without the old is like watching Return of the Jedi without having watched A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. The story stands together, stands on its own, but you miss so much of the wealth of backstory that it's not nearly as rich. And the beauty of the story of Abraham and Isaac and that long, confusing journey up Mount Moriah is absolutely foreshadowing. Because some 2,000 years later, another son would willingly follow his father up that same mountain up Mount Moriah. Only this son's name we know, his name was Jesus. And when he climbed that mountain, Mount Moriah didn't look anything like what Isaac saw. It wasn't just scrub brush and a desolate, empty mountain. Now the mountain had a city built upon its peak. That city's name is Jerusalem. And upon the very rocky outcropping where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, a temple was built. Not just any temple, the temple, the most holy place in all of Israel. And there are so many parallels between the journey that Isaac took and Jesus took. And this evening, I'd simply like to pull out a few of them. I'd like to contrast the two journeys that these two young made, or these two young men made. Because like Isaac, Jesus was a child of the promise. God, for centuries, had been promising that he would send a redeemer. He would send one who would rescue them. He even told them when he was going to be born, where he was going to be born, how he was going to be born, and all of these things had come to pass. Jesus was the child of promise, just like Isaac had been. But unlike Isaac, Jesus knew full well what the Father intended before he ever took his first step up the mountain. He knew the pain that he was about to endure, and yet he chose to climb that mountain anyway. He climbed it because he loved his father, he trusted his father, and he was willing to submit to his father's will. But he didn't just climb it out of obedience to the father, he climbed it out of a love for you and for me and every other one of God's image bearers who had been separated from him for sin, but because of our sin. Jesus understood the reason why he was being asked to do what he was being asked to do. He was the sacrificial lamb through whom God was going to restore the relationship of his image bearers back to him. But that doesn't mean he had to like it. And in fact, Jesus very clearly did not. Because when he reached the summit, and the night that he was going to be arrested, he actually took a few of his disciples and he took them into an olive orchard. 
And there he went a little further in until he was alone and he fell down on his knees and he begged the father, if there is any other way we can do this that does not end in me suffering on a Roman cross, please, let's do that. Any other way that we can redeem your image bearers that doesn't cause me to suffer, please. But not my will, but yours be done. Even in that, he submitted to the will of the father. Like Isaac, Jesus carried the wood upon which he would be sacrificed with splinters digging into his ravaged back that had been whipped and scourged as rivulets of blood ran down the side of his face from the crown of thorns that had been mockingly forced upon his head. It's ironic that the very people that were mocking him were the same people that Jesus had come to rescue. He was coming to give himself for people who would insult him and didn't understand who he was. And yet he didn't use that as an excuse to get out of it. Perhaps he could have, but he wasn't doing it because we had deserved it. He was doing it out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us. And every step he took through Jerusalem while dragging that old rugged cross, every slow agonizing step was an act of worship. He dragged his cross to the place of the skull, Golgotha, the place where Criminals were executed. And there he submitted himself to being nailed to the cross, having nails driven through his hands, driven through his feet. Like Isaac, he could have resisted. He could have pulled away. He could have tried to run away. He could have called down an army of angels to rescue him. But he didn't because he was willing to submit to the Father's will, even if it cost him his life. But this is the point where Isaac's story and Jesus' story diverge. Because unlike Isaac, God did not save Jesus out of it. He didn't offer a substitute, because Jesus was the substitute. He was the sacrificial lamb through whom God was going to redeem his image bearers and take the sins of the world upon himself. Like Isaac, Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the Father. He didn't close them. He didn't, even when the father himself could not look upon his son, when the, when the father, like Abraham, had to avert his eyes because it was too painful for him to watch the son that he loved, his one and only son, suffer under the weight of our sins, still Jesus didn't avert his eyes, nor did he blame us or curse us. Instead, as the crowds mocked him and said, if you really are the son of God, then come down. Jesus said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. He loved us even when we treated him like garbage. You know, you might wonder why God did it. I know it's a question that people ask often. Why would God do this to Jesus? Why would he allow him to suffer in this way? Certainly he could have done it a different way. But here's the thing about God. He is a loving God, but he is also a just God. And he recognizes that he couldn't just turn a blind eye to the disobedience of his image bearers. He couldn't just ignore sin would make a mockery of it. It would, like, it would be like a father who was a judge having his children come into the courtroom, having already broken the law, and then saying, 
you're free. You're not a rule breaker. You're not guilty. We would call that a mockery of justice, and God is not a mocker of justice. He is just. And so when humanity stood before him, we stood before him as guilty because we were guilty, every single one of us. But he's not just a just judge. He's also a loving father. And so after having passed judgment, he took his robes off and entered into our reality and paid the penalty of our crimes for us. That's what he did by sending the divine logos, the word through which he had spoke the world into existence, the very word through which he kept the world held together, that word took on flesh, entered into our reality, tabernacled with us for a season, and ultimately walked willingly to the cross, and there paid the penalty for our sins. How do we know that God did it because He loves us? We know because there is no greater love than one who would lay down his life for a friend. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for you and for me and for every other image bearer who has breath in their lungs, regardless of whether or not they will ever accept that gift. We, we studied John 3.16 a couple of months ago. It's a, a verse we know really well. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. He gave him. We didn't earn him. He gave him that whosoever believes in him doesn't have to perish. And by perishing, we're talking about an eternal separation from God, a severing of relationship. When Adam and Eve took that first bite of fruit and disobeyed God, they died spiritually that day, even though it would be years before their bodies physically died. Spiritual death is a separation from God. We don't have to remain in that state because if we believe in Him, then we have eternal life, and eternal life is the opposite of spiritual death. It is a restoration of that relationship. And it doesn't just happen when we die at some point later on in life. It happens the moment we say yes to the gift that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. When we say yes, not only to Jesus being our, our Savior, but our Lord. And saying, yes, I want you to put your Holy Spirit into me. The same spirit that empowered you through your earthly ministry, the same spirit that raised you from the dead, I want you to breathe new life into my heart. Jesus' willingness to go to the cross was a declaration to all people in all places in all times that no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how far you've run from God, you are never beyond his re restorative grasp. You have never outrun his love. I think of something that King David wrote in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go that I could not be near you? If I were to get on the fastest ship and cross the oceans, when I get to the other side, you're already there. If I were to go to the, the tallest mountain, you're there. And if I were to dive down to the deepest parts of the sea, you are there. Even if I try to hide on a moonlit night in the darkest shadows, even the shadows are like light to you. Now what he is not suggesting in that is God is just big father who's watching everything that we're doing and like taking tabs on us and he's going to punish us. What he's saying is, I cannot outrun your presence. No matter how far I go, I'm never far from you. And this is good news, by the way, really good news. Because a lot of times when we talk about being prodigals who have run from God, there's this sense, man, I've wandered really far. I know how far I've wandered. I'm beyond redemption. I mean, I'm so far gone that if I want to come back to God, it's going to take me years to backtrack. And that's faulty thinking, because that's thinking 
like human beings with a human father. Here's the difference. No matter how far you have run from him, no matter how deep the pit you have dug for yourself, when you are ready to come back home, all it takes is turning because he's right there with you. He has been the whole time. Even when you've been blowing it big time, even when you've been running away from him like Jonah was running from God because you did not want to do what you felt like he was placing on your heart, he was still close by. And all you need to do is turn. The Bible has a word for that. It's called repentance. It's a turning from one direction and going the other. And what you will find is that your father is right there with you in that moment ready to throw his arms around you, ready to take off the old, soiled robes that reek of your poor choices and put a brand new robe upon your shoulders and to throw a party for his child who was lost but has been found. The reason we call today good is not because Jesus died. <clears throat> That's a pretty, you know, morbid way to look at it. It's awful. It's truly awful. I mean, there's, there's a reason why some parents don't even, I had a couple of parents call me and go, is it okay for me to even bring my kids tonight because it's such a dark night? We don't call today Good Friday because Jesus died. We call today Good Friday because of why Jesus died. He died so that we might live. He endured our sins so that we could be restored back into the re our relationship with our Father, that we could be restored back to the purpose for which God created us, namely to be His representatives, reflecting His values into this world that seems to operate by a very different set of values. And He did so willingly. He knew what he was signing up for when he took on flesh. He understood what he was walking into when he set his eyes on, on Jerusalem and began that long, scary walk up Mount Moriah in the footsteps of Isaac. And so what is required of us? Certainly not earning it. Far too often we have gone into kind of our, our mindset that I've got to do something to be worthy of this. I've got to take all of these rules that have been handed down to me by my parents and my, uh, my pastors and, and, and as I read the Bible and I'm going to cobble them together into a broken stairway to heaven. And that's broken thinking. You can't earn a gift because then it wouldn't be a gift. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, gave his life to buy a new lease on life for us. And all that is required of you to take hold of that gift is to do what anybody who is offered a gift that is far beyond what they expect and far beyond what they deserve does. All you need to do is accept it and say thank you. And so I, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that for me is just a prayer of gratitude. And whether you've prayed this a hundred times or you've never prayed it, if what I'm about to pray resonates with your heart, I invite you to pray it along with me. Jesus, I thank you for loving me more than I deserve to be loved. I thank you that you willingly climbed that mountain carried that cross and absorbed my sins for me. I thank you that because you died, I can live. And because you chose to die for me, I choose to live for you. I choose you as my Savior. I accept the gift of grace and I also choose to follow you as my Lord.
Would you search me and know me? Would you, Holy Spirit, would you come into my life and begin to set things in order that my life might reflect your values instead of reflecting the values of this world? May you shine brightly in this world and may I be a reflection of that light that others who are stumbling in darkness might see and find you. Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's go ahead and worship together. Friday is one of those times that we have a tendency to want to rush through. Got to get through this so we can get through Sunday.
or get to Sunday. And I'm looking forward to Sunday too. Sometimes it's important for us to simply sit in the weight of the gift that was purchased for us. And guys, it's not just for us. It's for every other person that's stumbling through life right now. It's been a pretty hard year. There's a lot of people whose hope has taken a beating. And I can't wait on Sunday to remember the day that God resurrected our hope. And I look forward to celebrating with you. But please, do not come alone. Because there are people in your sphere of influence that need to be reminded that their hope does not rest upon who's in office or whether or not they've gotten a vaccine or whether or not they're going to get a stimulus check or whether or not they've got a job or whether or not their, their bodies are healthy. We put our hope in so many things that will ultimately let us down. On Sunday, we get to celebrate what grew from the seed that was planted on Good Friday. I look forward to celebrating with you because today is Friday, but Sunday's coming. So go be the church and make sure that you remind others where their hope is found. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening.